The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time is not yet to come, to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring out wood and rebuild the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain. Then you wine the oil and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, um, Lord, let us be still this morning as we just come to know your word. Um, God, I just pray that we could put all these distractions aside and come to know you and hear you better today. Lord, as Randall preaches on this sermon, um, Lord, I pray that would be more concerned about building your house than our own. Um, Lord, I just ask that you humble us, that you quiet our hearts, and that we could just listen to you this morning. Amen. All right. Thanks, Evan. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Well, we're going to be going uh, through a new series in Haggai. And so if you could turn to Haggai chapter 1. And I'm going to give you a minute because you're thinking to yourself, there's a book of Haggai? How do I find that? And so you can go to the table of contents, find it there. Um, but we're in this new series called The Economy of God, a study in the book of Haggai. And um, it's just two short chapters um, in the scriptures hidden in the Old Testament. So uh, we're going to be going through verses 1 through 11 today in the first chapter. And we're going to be going throughout the book of Haggai um, in this next month. And today, as we look at this text of scripture, um, it, it's... The focus is this, priorities in difficult times. Priorities in difficult times. Now, in 2008, we had one of the worst uh, economic downturns in U.S. history since the Great Depression of 1929. Uh, today, 10 years later, uh, we still feel its effects. Uh, Regis Barnacon, research uh, director at the San Francisco Fed, recently said this. He says, a decade after the last financial crisis and recession, the U.S. economy remains significantly smaller than it should be based on its pre-crisis growth trend. Uh, this represents a lifetime present value income loss of about 70000 for every American. Okay, and so thinking about that, you think, well, why did this happen? Um, as they, the researchers got down to it, a lot of it was because of greed. Greed. 
And uh, Forbes last month put out an article entitled 10 Years Later, a millennial uh, Four Millennials Describe How the Great Recession Shaped Their Lives. And one lady being interviewed, uh, Crystal Tyrell, or Kristen Tyrell said that she felt like because of the financial crisis, because of the greed that, that caused it, uh, her generation has been forced to play catch up for the rest of their lives. And because of that, she said, I feel very bitter about that. Um, as I talked about different uh, people within this generation, they said it was just a hard time, uh, not only financially, but tr just trying to find a job uh, because of the recession that happened. And as we look at what's happened in our country, it's important for us to look at the book of Haggai today because it's so relevant to us when we think about that. And so this month, we're going to be looking at this short book in the Old Testament to give us wisdom on how to handle the economy when it seems dark and uncertain, when times are hard, when you don't know how ends are going to meet, right? When you're facing difficult financial choices. Uh, during the, the time of Haggai, the people of Israel were just returning back to their homeland uh, from exile. And for some of them, uh, they were simply just trying to survive. For others of them, they were living in, in relative comfort and easy, ease. But um, this book is important because it addresses all the people and how they needed to rethink their priorities in life. It says twice in verses five and verse seven in chapter one, consider your ways, consider your ways. And so that's what we want to do today as we read through the book of Haggai. You see, some of us, we've grown up and we've, we've faced extreme financial hardship. And so you understand the strain that the lack of money can take on you mentally, emotionally, physically. For others of us, you haven't really had to face much financial hardship. And so in some ways, the economic recession of 2008 might even seem like a blip on the radar. Not much of a difference was made in your life. But for all of us, we have to face the reality of how we prioritize our resources, the wealth in which God gives us, uh, no matter how much we have or how little we have. Many of us wouldn't think of ourselves today as wealthy, right? If I were to walk around and say, how many would, would consider yourself wealthy? Many of us would say, that's not me. But studies say that if you make 25,000 a year, you are 98 percent richer than the rest of the world. 98% richer than the rest of the world. So what's God's perspective of wealth? Well, Luke 21, one through four, uh, it gives us a glimpse into how Jesus thought about wealth. And here's what it says. It says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And then he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contribute out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. See, what was Jesus teaching us here as he was seeing people put money in the box? He's telling us that God's view of, of wealth is much different than ours. And that ultimately, he cares more about the heart than the amount. Do you hear that today? God cares more about the heart than the amount. God is more interested in your character and who you are 
than about what you can do for him. See, it started out with this. It was about the poor widow putting her trust in God, even in scarcity, even in her own personal recession. You know, one of the things that I'm trying to teach my kids is the importance of money. And so we started giving them this little allowance. And then what happens is all three of them, they start getting concerned and worried and, and that's my money, that's my money, that's my money. And they start fighting over it. I mean, I think some of the biggest battles and concerns in our family have been over the issue of money, allowance. You know, but one of the things that my son told me, he says this, he said, um, dad, it's pretty cool that our money says, in God we trust. It says, in God we trust. And so that's something I'm still trying to teach them obviously, as they wrestle and fight over it. But let me ask you this. How much do we believe that statement? How much do we believe what God says? Because Jesus warns in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Whether in plenty or in need, God asks, what are your priorities? And the greatest revealer of this is how we use our money. And so Haggai 1, 1 through 11, uh, Haggai the prophet addresses this with the people of God. And, and just to give some background here, as I said earlier, the people of Israel had returned from exile and, and had been in the land for almost 20 years up to this point. And they had neglected to do one major thing. They neglected to rebuild God's temple. And that temple had been destroyed all the way back in 586 B.C., but as we see throughout this, this text here, uh, we see that they neglected that, but the foundations for the temple were there. It was there, but little progress had been made up to this point. Commentator uh, Peter Craigie says, Haggai was faced with the inertia of despair and sluggishness. And to cap it all, drought and various crop afflictions left the land poor and the people dispirited. The temple had been in ruin for decades, most would have thought that it should remain that way until such time as the economy improved. Haggai was one of the small handful of men who perceived that despite the sad state of the economy, something had to be done about the, the temple. Listen, from a religious standpoint, uh, the temple was a symbol of God's presence amongst his people. While it remained a ruin, there was little hope for a revival of the faith. And so personally, in the, in the economic drought that we face, in the economic drought that we see in the book of Haggai, what does God tell the people to address? What, what does he say? You need to address this even in economic drought. Well, he addressed three things. Number one, he addressed a me first mentality. Number two, he addressed a new order. And number three, a deeper lesson. A me first mentality, a new order, and a deeper lesson. So let's look at this first point, a me first mentality. Starting in verse two through six, here's what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not come, yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet is it, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. 
You have sown much and have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Let's start with verse two. Here's what he says. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So God here in this verse, verse two, is reiterating the people's reasoning for why they didn't feel it was time to rebuild the temple yet. For almost 20 years, they, they felt like they were still getting adjusted, still getting settled. They were still in an economic struggle. In, in, in every way, they felt like it was impractical to rebuild the temple of God. Here's what they thought. There's too much to do and we don't have enough resources. Essentially, we know what, that God has saved us from exile, but there's no time to think about God in his temple right now. We have other things that must take priority. And so how does God respond to that? Well, look at verse four. He says, this is getting real here. He says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled homes or houses while this house lies in ruins? See, this is the uniqueness to Christianity. This is the uniqueness to the God of the Bible. When you become a Christian, here's the thing. It's not just a simple one-way relationship. It's just me talking to God, but it's a two-way relationship. See, here's the thing about the Bible. It says that we serve a living God. And so God speaks back to us. And here, God is confronting his people. And he's doing two things here when he confronts them. First, he's doing this. He's challenging their excuses. He's challenging their excuses. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell? So the word here for dwell gives the impression of settling, settling in, you know, sitting around. Is it, is it time to do that? Is it time to just settle down here? The second thing he's exposing is this. He's exposing reality. He says, you're living in your paneled homes, your paneled houses. See, here's the thing. They were actually living much better than they thought they were or that they thought they should be living. They had time and resources to invest in comfortable paneled homes, but not time to invest in God. And here's what this exposes. They weren't living as desperately as their excuses made them out to look. They were living better than they realized. Here's the thing about living in San Diego. We think we have it tough, right? Because we, we look at the housing market right now and we think to ourselves, I should be in a place in life where I own my home. And, and here's the thing. I know this in University City because I, I look at, we do not own our home. We rent, but here's the thing. I look at the price of homes continuing to go up in our area and I think there is no way that we could ever own our own home, right? But, but the standard, Right, where does this standard come from that you need to own your own home? We think we expect it, we, we, we deserve it, we've earned it, like I deserve this. And so we look around and we say, man, I should have it better. And then people around the country are laughing at us because they're like, you look, you live in San Diego. I don't know if you were driving this path. I was driving on the highway looking at the sunset 
that we got to see this past week. And I thought to myself, you know what? I've got all these excuses about how hard I have it. But then I look at that and I think, man, God has provided so much. But in our minds, we don't think we have it as good as we should. And what that is, is this me first mentality that's saying, you know what? I should have it just a little bit better than, than I have it right now. And so lastly, God says in verses five through six, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Here's what he says. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you, you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. God is getting real here, and he's, he's getting down to the point of saying, just evaluate your life. Like, take a minute, consider your life. Consider what you have. Consider all that you have and consider the way that you're investing it right now. He's saying, let's get down to the root of the problem here. What it is, is a me first mentality that's your problem. You think you don't have enough in life, but look, I've provided enough for you to eat. I've, I've provided enough for you to drink. I've, I've provided enough for you to clothe yourself, but it's not enough. Look, throughout this verse, starting in verse six, look at what it starts with. You, 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 yourselves. God is pointing out something about their life that up to this point, they were living so focused on themselves that they did not see the goodness that God had provided them. And they never would until something shifts in their life. Peter Craigie says this, he says, it is a hard lesson to learn that practical policies are not always the best policies. But the real flaw in the policy that Haggai criticized was to be seen in its ordering of priorities. It was wrong not because it was practical, but because it was selfish. A life devoted to one's own needs rarely brings fulfillment. Whereas when the focus is shifted to an external need, the consequences is frequently satisfaction and fulfillment. A me first mentality will always find a way to justify that you never have enough in life. See, they had it much better than they thought. And God had much grace on them. Right, here's the thing about God. He didn't come to them addressing them and condemning them and saying how terrible of people you are, you selfish people. But he just says, hey, I love you. Let me show you something about yourself right now. You think you don't have enough, but look at what I've provided. He's come to them in grace. He says, I've given you these paneled homes. I've given you food. I've given you drink. But here's the thing, your priorities in life make you feel like you never have enough and it will continue to make you feel that way. You won't have enough because it just keeps going and going and going. And here we keep consuming. And so secondly, God offers this. He says, let me offer you a new order, a new order. Look at verses seven through nine. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hill and bring wood and, bring the, uh, and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. 
And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Again, God addressing the people in these verses offers now a new order. He says, this is a new set of priorities. And he tells them, would you consider this? Would you put me first instead of yourself first? Addressing them in verse nine, he says, okay, let me just speak to your common sense here. Let me just be really practical with you. He essentially says, here's what happened. For the past 20 years, you have put yourself first. You have lived this way. But let me ask, did it work? Did it work? You looked out for number one. Did it work? Let me offer you a gracious new order for life. And here's the thing. When you think about it, it might seem impractical to you. It might not make sense in your mind. But that's how faith always is, right? It's stepping out and trusting him. And God is saying, would you put me first? Would you put me first? In May 2015, actor Denzel Washington gave a speech to Dillard University's graduating class. And here's what he said. This is very interesting. He says, number one, he has this list of things. He said, number one, put God first. Put God first in everything you do, everything that you think you see in me, everything that I've accomplished, everything that you think I have, and I have a few things, everything that I have is by the grace of God. He says, understand that. It's a gift. 40 years ago, March 27th, 1975, it was 40 years ago, this past March, I was flunking out of college. I had a 1.7 point average, grade point average. I would fly at UCSD, right? <laughs> he says, I hope none of you can relate. I hope none of you can relate, right? I had 1.7 GPA. I was sitting in my mother's beauty shop and I'm looking in the mirror and I see behind me this woman under the dryer. And every time she looked up, she was looking at me. She's looking at me in the eye. I don't know who she was. And she said, somebody give me a pen. Give me a pencil. I have a prophecy. March 27, 1975, she said, boy, you are going to travel the world and speak to millions of people. Now, mind you, I flunked out of college. I'm thinking about joining the army. And she's telling me I'm going to travel the world and speak to millions of people. Well, I have traveled the world. I have spoke to millions of people, but that's not the most important thing. Success that I had, the most important thing is what she taught me. What she told me that day has stayed with me since. I've been protected. I've been directed. I've been corrected. I've been kept in my life by God. And it's kept me humble. I don't always stick with him, but he always sticks with me. So stick with him in everything you do. Here's the thing. He's given us a glimpse into his life. That's what happened to him. He's sharing a testimony of, of what it looks like as he goes into life, not knowing what's in front of him. But somebody telling him and, and taking him aside and saying, would you put God first? God first. See, and here's the thing. God is telling the people of Israel exactly what he's saying here. We need a new order, a new set of priorities where it's not me first, but God first. Lastly, a deeper lesson. Look at verses 11 or 10 and 11. 
Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I've called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Here's the thing, verse 11. God says that the drought was because of him. God is saying, you want to know why you have a drought right now? It's because of me. Why did God do this? Why would God do this to his people? Right, it should resonate at times when you look at your bank account and you say, God, why? Why me? Why is there a drought in my bank account right now? It's funny, I was talking with a college student couple weeks ago. She's like, when I look at my bank account, I say, Lord, Lord Jesus, help me. Help me, Jesus, right? Like, you feel that you have those moments. Why would God do this? It's so that the people of God would understand that ultimately God is in charge. It's so that the people of God would not depend on themselves, but depend on him. See, God is over all things in that anything good that comes in life, it's from him. It's not about us. See, he's pulling back the curtain on the universe and saying, you think it's about your abilities, your savvy, your education, your strategy that keeps you ahead of the game. That's what you think it is. You think it's your farming skills that's going to really outdo the drought? No, that's not what makes you productive, successful. No, he says, it's me, it's God. See, this is a deeper lesson of life that is a sheer act of grace. It is a sheer act of grace. If you look at your bank account and you're asking God, hey God, help me to depend on you more. Help me to trust you more. Because Matthew 5, 45, Jesus says this. He says, for he, God, makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Here's the thing. God is allowing all people to experience his goodness and his provision. All people get this, right? If the sun is rising and falling, there's rain that's coming. It's because of God. It's because of God. This is for both believer and unbeliever. But the fact that God is pulling back the curtain to show himself to us and say, I am ultimately your provider. And so if there are any good things that are coming into your life, it's because of me, that is sheer mercy. That is mercy. See, it's a sign that he wants you to know him. It's a sign that he wants you to know him. See, this is so much better than just having stuff in your life. See, what's the whole story when Jesus talks about the prodigal son? The prodigal son who comes to his father basically says, I wish you were dead because I want your stuff. And so the father graciously says, you want the stuff, go use all the stuff, take it, it's yours. And so he runs out and he uses it all on himself, living this me first life. And he spends his last penny and he thinks to himself, maybe, maybe I can just go back. Go back. 
Maybe there's, maybe I'm sure he would never accept me as a son again, but maybe he'll accept me as a servant. So I'll just go back to my dad and just say, could I just be your servant? And then we find that there's a God, the, the, the picture of God, this father coming back, wrapping his arms around a disobedient son. Putting his finest robe on him, his rings and saying, son, I'm glad you're home. What's the whole point? What's the whole point? Because later there's this good son who we could say he, he didn't do that. He had a nice savings account, right? Like he, he, yeah, he, he, he knew all, like, I'm going to follow the rules. We had that son. At the end, he's rebuked. Because both sons wanted the father's stuff. They didn't want the father. The elder son was upset with the father saying, hey, why can this guy come back? He's been so disobedient with all the things that you gave him. Why does he get to have a party and I don't? And the father comes to him and says, hey, I've been here the whole time. You got to spend time with me. You got to be in relationship with me. See, what is the whole point of all of this? There is a God in heaven who looks down in sheer grace, offering these good things in life and saying, you know what, those good things that you're enjoying right now, that's not the goal. The goal is me. And I want to have a relationship with you. So much so that I'll let you go through some droughts in life. If you go through some droughts, but you find me in it, you'll find that I'm better than any of the stuff that you had. Because there is an emptiness to life without God. In the book, The Fall by Albert Camus, there's a character named Clements. And he says this, he says, because I longed for eternal life, I went to bed with harlots and drank for nights on end. I slept in bliss, but awoke with the bitter taste of the mortal state. What's he talking about? He enjoyed what he thought were the finest things in life, just like the younger brother. But what you find is that it's empty. It's empty. It will not fulfill you. And God understands the empty, emptiness of life and that they could have it all. His people could have had it all. But if they didn't have him, they would be empty. This is the deeper lesson he wanted them to get. And so just quickly, some takeaways. Consider, let's use the word that we find in the text today. Consider, consider number one, your excuses. Your excuses. See, we all have them. See, Haggai challenges his listeners to evaluate their lives, verse five and verse seven, and we should today. To consider means to bring your heart out in the open and to think hard and deeply about life. It's a self-evaluation. And so let's ask, do you have more time than you realize right now? Do you have more resources than you realize right now? And are you grateful for what God has given you? And do you see everything that you have as sheer grace from God? Kindness from him in life. Here's the thing. Our culture's most common answer to the question, how are you? We say, how are you? Is this busy. You want to know how I am? I am busy. 
And then for a lot of us, it's true. But let's just consider for a minute, busy doing what? Busy doing what? I remember one of my friends said, you know, I think one of the things that we'll find out about Facebook is that we'll realize, and just social media in general, that we actually had more time to pray than we actually thought that we did. But we've been spending it in other places. He said, it just takes away our excuse, right? And so let's think about this for a minute. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Crazy Busy, says this, the greatest danger of busyness is that there may be greater dangers you never have time to consider. There may be greater dangers that you never have time to consider because you are so busy running around. And so let me ask, are we prioritizing God? These two questions might help. Number one, does your busyness align with what God is asking you to do? Does your busyness align with what God is asking you to do? Here's the thing I know. We can get so busy and so wrapped up in other things, but it's not the thing that God's asking us to do, right? We get so stressed out, but we never thought for a minute, okay, God, is it okay for me to lay my head on the pillow at night and not be stressed out? Is it okay to hand these things over to you and put them in your hands and let you just know that you are able and you're capable to accomplish some things that I can't? Or maybe there's some things that just need to fall to the wayside that maybe weren't as important as I thought they were. See, that's one of the things that I've learned in life is that we can be so busy, but it's not in alignment with what God is asking us to be busy with. The second question is this, does your resources, use of resources, time, talent, money, align with what God asks of you? Right, and so we're asking just, does it align with what God is asking of me? where I'm at in life, who I am right now. See, some of our greatest excuses is this. Well, I'm just a college student. I, I get it, but, but I'm just not in the position yet. I will later. Hey, man, I live in San Diego. I get it. But let me ask, could this hold us back from being useful for the kingdom of God right now? Right now. Jesus says, one who is faithful with very little is also faithful with much. And one who is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Like I talked about before, this isn't an amount thing. This is, this is what God has placed in your hands and saying, am I just being faithful with this? It's a character thing. God wants to develop you as a person. He has something for you. He's not asking something from you. He wants something for you to develop you into a person that looks more and more like Jesus. And here's what I want to say. Grace City, I want to encourage you with this because all of us have room to grow in this area. All of us do. But we need to consider. And I want to say this. I have been amazed at the willing sacrifice within this church of single mothers, college students, young adults within our church. Many of you are sitting next to people, maybe even widows, who I believe have the very same faith that, faith that Jesus talked about when he commended the woman in Luke 21. And I wanna say just as a church, thank you 
for your sacrifice. Thank you for not allowing your excuses to hold you back from trusting God. So much so that we understand as a church that we would not be here today without the generosity of people that went before us. And so as we planted Grace City, there were people that gave and that continue to give to make this possible. And when we started during that first year, we said, we will not be a church that is gonna have a me first mentality and that's why we're gonna give it away, give money away so we can plant a church in Loja, Ecuador and understand this isn't about us. This is about God's kingdom and what he's doing in the world. So I wanna encourage us today, let's consider our ways before God and let's ask, am I being held back because I have got these excuses? Second, God's ways. Here's the thing that we see all throughout scripture. God owns everything. He owns everything. Uh, one, one theologian once said, when, when, when we look at the earth, God in his grace, in his sovereignty, looks at the earth and says, mine, that's mine, that's mine. He owns it all, okay? But let me address something. Many of us are holding on to our possessions, wealth, time, like it's our own, like it's mine. And here's the thing, it won't satisfy. And you say, well, okay, I get that, but what are God's ways? Where do I start? Well, Deuteronomy 26 talks about a tenth of what we have in offering that to God. We see that in the Old Testament scriptures. That, that is there, okay? And what God talks about is a tenth. He's talking about a percentage, not an amount. And so as we look at the Old Testament scriptures, it's there. Why does he put that there? Because it's a starting place for us. I remember when I was a high schooler and I, and I, I didn't grow up in the church. God saved me. He saved me radically. And I remember being there in a service one week and the, the basket going around and my, my grandmother, she just sent me a thousand dollars. And I just heard about the, you know, the 10th and I was like, okay, I'm coming in here with a hundred dollars. And I remember it was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. I'm like, man, there's so much I can do, you know, like. But I had $900 still. As a 16-year-old kid, like, who does that, right? And what it taught me in that moment was coming before God and saying, God, this isn't mine. And I'm telling you, like, I felt so good. Because here's the thing. Nobody knew that that was hundred dollars I get because I didn't have it in the envelope and all that stuff. I just a 16 year old kid. You know what I mean? But it's like here, God, I need you. I don't want to be controlled by this because you know what? In the past, like I, I've got two brothers and I'm the first child and first child, you guys know this, you want first priority. Right, you want first priority and you think that you, you deserve like having first priority stuff. And so God has to kill that in me because that's not how he's asked me to live. Timothy Keller says this, he says, in the Old Testament, we know the Old Testament believers were required to give away 10% of their annual income to God's work, to the poor and so on. Everything we know from both pagan and Christian historical texts from the New Testament and early Christian and even pagan historical texts is the early Christians went way beyond the tithe. They went way beyond 10% as a result. The pagans had never seen anybody this promiscuous with their money. 
They'd never seen people give their money away in such proportion. They'd never seen people give it away with joy. Here's the reason why Christians don't worship money. You want to know what it means to be a Christian? You do not worship money. We worship God. Just like he says earlier, you got, you got a choice. You can either worship money or worship God. There's no in between. And so we don't worship money as Christians. And so here's my, my challenge to you. Here's my challenge. By the grace of God, just start somewhere. Just start somewhere. If you, if you look at what you have and you're like, man, Jesus, I'm looking at my bank account right now and it's low. But if you said, okay, I'm just gonna try to give 1% to the work of God. That's it. His grace is sufficient for you. He can cover you. He knows that. It's a process. Or if you're at 1%, God, what do it look like to give 2%? Right, because here's the thing. For me and my family, my question is not, what's the minimum I can give? God, what's all that I can give? What does it look like? Because it's all yours anyway. And I know that you will take care of us. And here's the thing, the last point, this is very important, it's the why. It's the why. Throughout the Bible, God is very intentional about the why behind our sacrifice. He looked at uh, his people and he says, I, I don't need your burnt offerings. I don't need these things. I don't need it. So why does God ask it? There are many reasons behind why. And, and, and here's the thing. There are many reasons why you and I make sacrifices. Time, talent, money, all those things. There are different reasons. Some of it today, and you might have grown up in a church like this, it was fear-based. If I don't give, what's God gonna do to me? I'm gonna get another drought in my life if I don't give. And we think of God as this condemning God who's coming into our lives just ready to bring down the hammer and bring down judgment if we don't obey him. And so out of fear, we give, we sacrifice. Some of it could just be guilt-based. Oh man, I just feel really guilty. I should be giving more, I should be doing more, but I just feel really guilty about that. But here's what we see all throughout scripture. It's grace-based. It's grace-based. We offer our lives, we offer what we have, not out of this obligation of saying, God, I'm gonna do this for you, but out of all that God has done for us out of all that God has done for us. And so the illustration that's used in 2 Corinthians is, okay, here, here's the reason. Look at your life. Look at the grace that God has had on you. Look at all the abundance that he's given you. He loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. Look at the grace. See, what was the motivating factor why for the people to give and sacrifice during the time of Haggai? that they'd been saved. They had been saved. See, here's the thing. God had brought them out of exile. He had saved them by his grace. And so it is through experiencing God's grace, they are now asked to give. And so let me ask this. What do we know that the people of Haggai's day didn't? We know the ultimate why. What is the true return of exile? that we experience in our life. 
the true redemption, the true salvation. It's in the greatest gift that we could ever know, the gospel, that God gave his son to us to save us. See, grace-based giving and sacrifice is motivated because of God's costly grace for us. God's costly grace for us. As I look through the scriptures, I see there's a God that did not hold back, but at every expense gave his own son for me. And it changes your heart. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. It is costly because the cost got, it cost God the life of his son. You were, brought at a, you were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. So my question is this, what are, what are our priorities today? What are our priorities today? They will never change until we understand that we, you, are valuable to God and that he was willing to give everything for you. He was willing to sacrifice for you. He was willing to die for you. And in that, it changes our motivations. It changes everything about us. And we live in a culture that wants to fight so much and say, it's all about me. And God asked today, is it working? Is it working? Because what would it look like if we said, I'm gonna reject that and trust Jesus and trust what he's done for me and know that everything I have is a gift of his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Haggai, for the truths that are in it. And I pray, Lord, that by your grace, we will be a generous people because you are a generous God. You've given much for us. And so I pray that today we will sacrifice out of a love for you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.